This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth managers who go above and beyond to guide and support you. CanDo is more than just an attitude. It's navigating today for a brighter tomorrow. Visit CanDoWealth.com. Hello and welcome to Women with Balls, where I, Katie Balls, speak to today's trailblazers. My guest today is an international best-selling author who sold millions of books translated into 38 different languages. She describes herself as a feminist and has worked hard to champion other female authors by creating the Women's Prize of Fiction and Nonfiction, now the UK's most prestigious annual book award. My guest isn't afraid to use her platform to address issues she feels strongly about. In 2013, she was awarded an OBE for services to women in literature. Born in West Sussex, my guest still lives there now alongside her childhood sweetheart. My guest today is Kate Moss. Thank you so much for coming to The Spectator today. Is this your first time at our office? Or are you? It is. I've walked past here so many times and gone into the pub on the corner, to be honest, but never come in here. So yeah, That's very much a pub, which I think is good to stand outside. Yeah, exactly. That's, you don't go in. <laughs> um, now, on this podcast, we begin by asking uh, the same question, which is, would you describe yours as a happy childhood? Yes. You know, I, I mean, I didn't... There's a, a book called The Tiger Who Came to Tea that most people know. And I was like the girl in The Tiger Who Came for Tea. You know, sort of, my parents were fantastic, had two younger sisters. You know, we all sat down every night and had dinner together. So it was one of those 1960s childhoods that, it turns out, mostly only exist in books. <laughs> and were you at all inspired by your parents' careers or growing up? By, by them, yeah. rather than their careers in particular. They were. My mother was a teacher and then she went on to teach law at a college and my father was a solicitor but what I was impressed by was that they always believed that alongside the paid work that you were doing you should be making a contribution so our house was always filled with committee meetings whether it was the guides or the parish council or the association to get a field for all the children of the village and it just meant that there were always people coming and going and a sense that you lived somewhere you made a contribution to that place so they were inspirational in that that you don't just take the fortune that's been given to you and sit on your hands, you go out and pass it on. So a real sense of community. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Now, you attended an all-girls school. Uh, was that enjoyable? Yeah, it was great. I mean, it was, it was a massive comprehensive school. So if you think of 2,000 girls, that's, you know, that, it's noisy, definitely noisy. And it had been formed between the amalgamation between the secondary bond and the grammar school just a few years before. So, and it, it was huge. And I was quite a swat. And so I got into the habit of going into the school quite early and leaving quite late to avoid the very cool girls who hung around the bus station with their skirts rolled up and smoking and had boyfriends and things like this. Um, But actually, it was great because you don't realise it at the time. But the one thing that can't define you if you're in an all-girls school, if you're a girl, is that you're a girl. So you are already thinking in terms of yourself as being, no, not me, but the sporty one or the pretty one, also not me, um, you know, but the, you know, the, the swatty one, very much me. So I think that was a really early lesson without even knowing it was happening. There, it was all about what type of person you were. So time focusing on yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And therefore you say you know, geeky, swatty, um, academic? Yes, but not, not outstanding. I mean, I was, I worked hard. You know, I had friends who were the ones that were always going to get all the A's and all the rest of it. And I knew that I needed to work hard to be with that group. But I was very determined. I mean, I was very determined that I was going to do well. So quite early on, did you know that you liked to write? No. In fact, (laughs) one of my... um, 
a novel of mine called Labyrinth that became um, a very big seller and it kind of transformed my life, at the overnight success at the age of 45. When I started to do interviews, people would say, oh, so you always wrote. And I would go, no, no, no. And my mum... Uh, reminded me that I had always written. I wrote terrible, terrible short stories, mostly about Eskimos, as as they were called then, because I was obsessed with Scott of the Antarctic for some reason. Um, And I also... But the thing that was my definition for myself was music. And so I didn't remember that I had been always writing plays and making everybody put them on and make their own costumes out of silver foil and all of these kind of things. And it was only much later when I was a writer that people I'd been at school with and my my mum and my dad, would say, no, you did always write. So it wasn't the story I'd told myself about myself. Yes, it was less conscious that yeah. it was going that way. Now, you mentioned that you were inside at the library, you were not with the girls hiking up their skirts outside. Yeah. But yet, <laughs> you did meet your husband at quite a young age. I did. But, you see, we met in the joint high school, you know, boys comp, girls comp production of La Vie Prisienne. And he was singing in the cast and I was in the orchestra. So these were... What uh, instrument? Violin. Violin. So I was sitting and um, and that was the only time, you know, the girls and the boys' schools got together to do this, this production. And uh, my husband, Greg, tells a very funny story that he was standing next to a friend on stage who was going through every single girl he fancied, which was, of course, all the girls because he was 16. <laughs> so, you know, there wasn't much discrimination. And that he said, but that's the one I really like. And Greg then thought he'd slip in <laughs> and steal me away. So we went out for two years after that when we were at school for the end of school. But he was the year above me and went off to university and it just fizzled out like those things do. But then we met again years later later on a train <laughs> um so when you left school what did you want to do was I wanted it, writing was a longer transition yeah I mean I wanted to, to go up to university and I hadn't thought beyond that I think you know, it's one of the things that grieves me for younger people today that they're being asked to think about their careers at the age of 12 13 14 whereas I think in my day you know I I went up to university in 1981 having taken a year off I was thinking about going to be a student not what that would lead to, but the idea of what would be fun and important to study. So I did English at university, but I did get a place at music college. And up until the last moment, I hadn't definitely decided which I was going to do. But then I realised, you know, I wasn't... I was a, a good violinist in Chichester and West Sussex terms, but no better than that. And I realised that actually that as my career wouldn't suit me. And so I went and read English at university and said, and I never really thought about what I was going to do until I came out. And even then I didn't really think about it I kind of fell into work because I was a secretary because again in those days that's what didn't matter what degree you'd got or where you'd gone uh, that's what girls did you know you came out you'd got a secretarial course you went and worked as somebody's secretary and that's what I did you're a secretary at publishing house though is that right yeah I was sent off you know I I literally was part of a temp agency and the first week they said well you go to this place Hodder and Stoughton in Bedford Square and of course I arrived it was this beautiful white Georgian stucco building one of those fantastic buildings in Bedford Square and I worked there for a couple of weeks and when the person came back there was somebody else went off and before I knew it I'd kind of been there for a few months and then somebody left and they said would you want a job because again in those days there wasn't quite so much monitoring and intention to try to broaden out the the pool of people working in publishing they said well she's here and she'll do so and I didn't know what I did want to do so I thought well I might as well and I was enjoying it and obviously I love reading and being about books and I enjoyed the atmosphere very much there so during that period you then start to think more about picking up the pen or no no not in the slightest no (laughs) 
<laughs> no, no, I know where you're leading me here, Katie, but really, no. <laughs> no, it was... Um, what was I doing then? I was, I was very politically active when I was at university. Yeah. I kind of arrived at university rather sheltered in a way because although I'd been at a massive comprehensive school, it was in Sussex and I had amazing parents and good friends and, a, you know, all of that kind of thing felt very empowered. I wouldn't have used the word empowered or any of those things. But when I got to university, I met a lot of different types of people whose experiences of their childhood and their uh, academic life were so different from mine. And, you know, met people who had got much better A-level grades than me, but felt failed because they hadn't done quite as well as all the other people in their family or whatever. And it made me realise how lucky I had been, you know, that my parents had always just said, well done, you did your best. And that was, it makes you very confident and all of these things. So I did a lot of politics at university. In those days, um, it was reclaim the night. There was a, it, the, the big trigger issue was pornography and all of that kind of thing. So I spent a lot of time marching up and down. I spent a lot of time going to Greenham Common, reading much more broadly than I had. So when I came out into the world of work, I was working as a secretary in publishing, but I joined the NUJ as part of the book branch and was part of campaigns to get affordable childcare for women working in publishing. So there was a moment at which I might almost have done a political career but I've always believed and my parents brought me up to believe this that you know enjoy what you're doing give it a go if it doesn't work do something else I'd never been somebody who thought well in two years time I'm going to be at this place in the world and in five years time I'm going to be in this place so I never had a career plan ever and I've got to 62 now and it's worked okay so <laughs> as you say a lot of those kind of feminist movements in that in that period did you feel an affinity to one particular party or was it more the causes in terms of political party yeah. no but i learned a great deal by publishing people in the political environment and being you know supporting those kind of things so my parents when i was growing up you know they were old school macmillan tories you know um uh, my dad, incredible, honourable, decent man. Uh, my mother, absolutely the same. Sparky would have had a very different sort of career had she been born at a different time, probably. Um, over the years, she moved away and from the Conservative Party and started to vote Green. But um, I can remember very much my mother being really excited when Margaret Thatcher was elected, in the way that many people were, because it felt very significant, and of course, indeed, it was. But I didn't find attractive the tribalism of party politics because my interest was women and men have built the world together so why are women often not listened to and overlooked and that was becoming and I discovered you know as as we all discover when we go to these conferences and things that the issues that affect women are common in every political party it's it, there isn't a party that necessarily doesn't have the same issues and so I was a very baby editor working on the Tony Benn diaries and that was an eye-opener going out and about with Tony Benn in the country. People would stop him in the street to shake his hand. Women would give him flowers. It was incredibly interesting to see because I'd only known of him as this demonised person. Then you, I was working on a book by Michael Heseltine. Went to his office one day. He, of course, was a very clever, very charming man and the most diverse group of people working in a political office I ever saw. And at this moment, I realised that the easy certainties that are presented, that this party is good and this party is evil, just simply wasn't true. And so I remained and am very, very interested in politics, but very much not 
party politically linked. I'm more interested in policy. That's interesting, yeah. It's always a bit more complicated. Always <laughs> more complicated. <laughs> Real for life, but also politics. Um, now, so we're at the process where, of course, you, um, working in publishing, you got the movements on the side. At some point, you reunite with Greg. Yes, on a train, Gatling on a train. Airport. Great, I by mean, chance. Actually, actually, by chance, on a train, in a kind of joke fashion. I mean, everybody goes, come on. <laughs> but it was what happened. My sister, my middle sister, was in labour, she rang me up, it's the days before everybody had mobile phones, said, could I come? So I, and it was a Saturday morning, I left my flat in London, leapt on the first train, going home to Chichester. A, a, a man, boy, got on opposite me, having got off a plane from Paris and hadn't got the train that had just come in because there was a new newspaper called The Correspondent and he'd wanted to buy it and see what it was like. So he'd missed the previous train got on and actually sat opposite me in the carriage. And it was like, oh, <laughs> and I mean, crazy moment. And of course, he didn't really look so different because boys don't in a way at that stage. But I'd gone from being a kind of rather fluffy, flicky girl to having a buzz cut. And, you know, <laughs> I don't know, because I was, you know, marching Embrace up and down. Me. Exactly. You know, I was in the labour movement now and all these kind of things. And so it, I recognised him sooner than he recognised me. But then once we did, it was... Uh, it was a very odd experience. It was just, oh, yeah, no, no, we were right in the first place. And got off the train. My lovely dad was waiting to pick me up. But I said, could we give Greg a lift? And my father just said, yes, of course. How nice to see you again. <laughs> and it would have been like eight years. And we got back to his place uh, his, his, where his mother was living at the time. And I walked in and <laughs> and she said, oh, hello, Kate. You know, like, like I'd seen her last Thursday week. And, of course, that is, that we'll come on to, one of the reasons that we could be a multi-generational household and carers because we'd all known each other since Greg and I were 15. And so it snapped back quite quickly. It, it took a while. We both had situations to yeah. arrange and we <laughs> behaved appropriately in those. Yeah. Uh, but Let yes. the record state. Let the record state that nothing untoward <laughs> was done till it was allowed to be done. <laughs> um, now, we're talking about the time publishing and uh, obviously the recurring theme is that you did not actively want to write for quite some time. Yes. <laughs> but we're getting close You've to that moment. you that out, Katie. You've got it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I'm correct in saying your first piece of writing that published was non-fiction. Yes. That was Becoming a Mother? Yes, a book about being pregnant. Yeah. At that point, had you decided you wanted to become a writer, or is that actually a bit of a state of mind? It's more just you wrote something and then... It was the same idea, which is kind of how I've always lived, which is if an opportunity is given to you, give it a go. So, no, I hadn't decided I wanted to write a book, but I was having lunch with a, a friend who is a literary agent, and we liked each other very much, but I'd never bought a book from him. The sort of books he sold were not the sort of books that I bought as a publisher. But I was pregnant expecting my second child, my son. My daughter was about two at this age. And I said, you know, it's quite extraordinary. The book I wanted to read when I was pregnant isn't, you know, wasn't there then. And now I'm pregnant again and it's still not there. And he challenged me essentially. He said, well, why don't you stop moaning and write it? And I went, OK, I will, in a kind of slightly huffy way. And I went home. He says that it was a week or so. The way I tell the story was it was overnight because that's a much better story. But that he rang up the next day and saying, I have a publishing contract for you from Virago. They, they like the idea of writing a book about what it emotionally is like to be pregnant and why women might or might not want to do it and how they feel. And, you know, you can deliver it after the baby's born. It was like, well, all right, I will. You know, so, <laughs> so that's how I started writing. And then 
the same agent knew that the BBC was making a big documentary series on the Royal Opera House. And in those days, always, there was a BBC book that went with the series. But there had been a decision that somebody who wrote the book didn't need to know a certain amount about classical music. It couldn't simply be a random producer <laughs> on the tab. Um, and somehow, partly because I wasn't in the classical music world, so I didn't have any affiliations or I, I didn't have an agenda. There's, there's quite a lot of politics within classical music back then. Somehow, again, he got me that gig. So I then spent a year backstage at the Royal Opera House Covent Garden and travelling with the Royal Ballet all over the world. And that was an amazing experience. And because of that, somebody else said, have you ever thought about writing fiction? And I thought, I'll give it a go. <laughs> and at that point, do you stop kind of, you're no longer doing the publishing work because these writing projects combined with childcare have taken I over? I stopped when I started, when I was writing the pregnancy book, yes. I was offered um, a big promotion in publishing when I was expecting my son and my daughter was two. And that was the moment at which I had to think, OK, Kate, is this what you want, to be the CEO of a publishing company? Because if you say yes to this, that is what you're accepting, that this is your career trajectory. And I just thought, you know, that isn't what I want, as much as I loved publishing. So I didn't take the job and I stepped away. And so we went from me having a proper job and an office and people and a car and all of these things to me writing a book for Feminist Press on pregnancy and my husband training as a teacher. <laughs> and I still don't know how we survived in those yeah. early years, actually, but we did. I think this is probably one of those questions that, I don't know, there's some questions in journalism, perhaps it's one of those which say, what's your routine? But I just wonder, <laughs> as someone who's had to, lots of had to work from home recently and find almost um, the lack of routine yeah, yeah. slightly... Uh, I don't know, confusing freak out level. Um, so if, you, if you're going from kind of the office job where you have quite a routine to one where you're just getting up to make time for yourself, did you find that quite easy to do? Yes, I'm, I'm really disciplined. Um, yeah. And I think that's the other thing, that if you go to a massive school where it's kind of up to you whether you do the work or not, you know, there's, there's not the level of supervision if you're in a class with 35 other people, you know, all of that kind of thing. So all of my academic career and, and then university careers, you know, it's kind of up to you. You've got to sit down. There's no shortcut, whether it's writing or doing a job, to you sitting down at your desk and doing the job. But it doesn't happen magically. There are no elves coming to mend the shoes. And so it, that wasn't difficult for me. And also because I'd always done lots of other things. You know, I was always doing campaigning things and obviously I was a parent. And I got a full-time job, but it wasn't the only thing I'd ever done. So it, it's, um, I've never found it difficult to just get on with it. Um, now, you mentioned earlier in the interview hitting the big time at 45. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Overnight success. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And the Leverant trilogy is set in Carcassonne or yeah. parts of it. So and I know, you know, some of our listeners may have even heard it before, but was there a moment, you know, obviously you have the idea. Is there a moment before the book goes out that you start to think, you know, this is going to be my moment or, you know, this is going to be the one that really takes off or do you yeah. not really know until it's... It's both things. With Labyrinth, the biggest difference had happened long before I showed it to anybody, which was I had written four books by this stage and we had bought in 1989, so before we had our children, a tiny house in Carcassonne in the southwest of France and a whole, you know, we were only there because a, a friend of my mother-in-law... Uh, was an estate agent locally in Sussex, and she'd got a friend who got a friend who was somehow twinned with an estate agent in Coxon, but never heard of it before then. And my 
marvellous mother-in-law had retired from teaching. She worked in a school for mentally and physically disabled young people. And she was a brilliant teacher and had been given a lump sum, and a, a sort of lump sum that would buy you a very attractive, you know, wheelie bin in Sussex. It certainly wasn't going to do anything else. But <laughs> you could buy a little something in France. And so we did that. And I hadn't intended to write about Carcassonne, but the longer we were there... The experience that is still true for me with my fiction is what I always call the whispering in the landscape. Just the idea that there's a story here that I could tell. And that kept building and building and building. And then I started to think about writing a novel about it, inspired by the Cathars. And it was a full 10 years before there was any moment of showing anything to anybody. But when I did... I had that experience that, you know, sometimes people say, oh, you know, you'll never have a book as big as Labyrinth. And you go, no, but I had it once. I might do. You know, the, the, it's not often you have that experience. And it, I had that experience where, firstly, suddenly everybody wanted to publish this book. And foreign publishers wanted to translate it. So there was an enormous um, expectation on the book. And then, of course, I had to go and actually write the book. So that was quiet and it, it went away. And I had a full-time job when I was... Um, the executive director of Chichester Festival Theatre, and that was really a full-time job. So, I, again, it took a long time. And then it did all feel like it was building to something. And it was published on the 7th of July, actually my husband's birthday, 2005, which is the day all the bombs went off. So the whole story of Labyrinth was very weird. So I can remember the day before having lunch with my editor in London, walking through Trafalgar Square when it was announced that Britain had got the Olympics for 2012, and then coming up to London the next day on the train. And it's hard for us all to remember how mobile phones weren't ubiquitous in the same way. And walking through London, thinking, there's a lot of people walking about. How weird. And arriving at my publisher, and my publisher saying, what are you doing here? And I say, well, it's publication day. And they're saying, you, have you not heard? There's four bombs have gone off in London. Everything's locked down. So spent publication day, because, of course, nothing matters compared to what happened that day for people. And, uh, you know, like many people, I knew people who died on that day. So, of course, a book publication is utterly irrelevant, but it was very surreal at the same time. And then what happened is over the next few weeks when there was another round of bombs, if you remember, but also everything was shut and, of course, the papers were full of these things booksellers, when their doors were open again, were saying, have you read this book? And so then little by little, Labyrinth went from being completely invisible when it was supposed to have been this big thing to just creeping into the chart. And my husband, it's still the one I've got up on the wall, laminated the Sunday Times about a month after it came out when it was at number 10. And I can remember thinking, nothing will ever be as big as this again, as being number 10 in the chart. And now you're quite used to number one. <laughs> I don't take it for granted. <laughs> I'm allowed to say it. <laughs> because your latest book's recently come out. And what was the inspiration for that? It's called The Ghost Ship. And it's part of a quartet of books which were inspired by the Huguenot diaspora going from 1562 in France to 1862 in uh, Franschhoek in South Africa. And, you know, I suppose my topic is really war and the consequences of war and faith and the consequences of faith. And very interested in the Huguenot diaspora, particularly not least of all because everywhere that the Huguenots went, countries were enriched and uh, made more powerful. If little tiny Holland, which was at this stage in the 16th, 17th century, called United Provinces, 
they took in a huge number of refugees, almost doubled their population of French uh, refugees, and as a result became a world superpower. So with everything, you know, I'm interested in the migrations of peoples and what they can do, and also that everybody who is a Huguenot or knows anything about the Huguenot story is proud of it. It's a very interesting and quite unusual in some ways. And so it's a series of books, and the ghost ship itself is the pirate story. And it's um, women living disguised lives. You know, lady pirates, what's not to like, as the Daily Mail described it. <laughs> <laughs> now, I want to talk about um, your role as a carer before we finish the podcast, but I suppose just one thing. I mentioned in the introduction, you obviously role in terms of the literary prize, but also, I think, speaking up for fellow female authors. And was it after Labyrinth that you felt as though... I suppose people listened to more what you had to say on these things? No, they, no? It, it very much predated Labyrinth. It was 19... The first prize was 1996. So a long time before. I think the thing that is important to say that everything about the Women's Prize for Fiction and now the Women's Prize for Nonfiction, and indeed my own fiction, is not about taking men out of the story. It is absolutely about putting women in beside them where they belong and where we always were. That's the point. And so I absolutely, my life, you know, 40 years of promoting and amplifying and celebrating female authors, but also male authors, you know. um, And I think this is really important because when I was launching the prize, there was a very deliberate attempt to turn it into an anti-male thing. And I remember trying to explain to my dad when I was writing Labyrinth and setting up the prize, they, they, you know, because I was writing Labyrinth over this long period of time, and explaining to my dad. And I said, you know, the thing about Labyrinth and all the fiction I'm, I'm going to write is that, you know, you used to read me adventure stories, and it's just exactly the same as the stories you used to read me, except in my books, the women get to have the swords and the women get to be on horseback and they get to do the rescuing. And my dad just looked at me and he says, oh, I see, it's just about getting a bigger table and more chairs. And that, you know, that's a man in his... Well, he died when he was in his 80s. And of a a gentleman, an English gentleman of a certain type. So with the prize, it was absolutely about saying there's incredible fiction by women out there. Why isn't it on prize shortlist? What is it that we value about literature with a capital L that means that a lot of work by women isn't seen as good enough or appropriate enough? And that is the thing about changing the balance and just simply uh, providing a world where girls and boys and everybody and men and women and everybody see themselves reflected and the minute you see it in those terms it's just common sense isn't it that's all it's common sense and I mean we've had well I think probably most guests in this podcast would say they are feminists but we've had a few feminists on recently who often will say that actually they feel in the past few years almost the women's rights movement has gone back a bit um, they look at, you know, they, they think women's places are being eroded away and so forth. But I wonder, on women's fiction, do you think it's in a healthy place right now? Yes, I, re- I really do. And I think um, the thing that gives me enormous pleasure, because I do a lot of interviewing of other writers as well, is that even in this day and age with technology and all the discussions that are going on about how people receive stories and what matters in the world, and you've got one or two very, very visible, rather daft men, boy, people making comments about reading doesn't matter and all of this sort of stuff. The truth is that people still think that a book is something. It's worth 
having and it's worth writing. And that gives me enormous pleasure. And when I look at the state of fiction written by women, I think there are more and more incredible writers out there. It's one of the reasons we've you know, founded the Women's Prize for Nonfiction, because actually there's a job to be done there still, in that only 25% of nonfiction books reviewed are by women. And there is a, there's still an idea that an expert is somebody with a beard and possibly cobwebs coming off his eyebrows. Who knows? Um, so I think that it's always with literary prizes. It's about telling readers, whoever they are, about the best that's out there, and then they can make their own minds up. But I'm, I'm really optimistic about fiction at the moment. I'm trying to think who the men boys are who are saying don't read books. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sure it will come to us. No, um, we recently appeared on Broadcasting House together and you're talking about being a grandmother, but you also have another role in your family, um, which is that of caring and being a carer. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes, I have been a carer on and off for 15 years. And uh, women have a 50-50 chance of being a carer by the time they're 59. Uh, men's odds actually are not... That don't reach that point till they're 75, which all the organisations working in this area feel probably suggest that women care for everybody who needs it and men care for their partners. <laughs> but who knows? It's, you know, there's, there's not really very rigorous research. But my parents moved in with us uh, in 2008. Uh, my father was somebody who was living with Parkinson's very successfully. But then, as is so common in the story of ageing, something it can be a fall it can be a virus triggers a huge reaction and that's what happened to my dad that he went away on holiday and was fine and he got a virus on the plane and by the time they were landing we were rushing to intensive care and he he did live for a few, a few years after that but parkinson's is a very debilitating and very ugly condition and it's very hard my ma was you know incredibly um, energetic, active, strong, wonderful woman, tiny. It's very hard looking after somebody with Parkinson's when it's very advanced. And that was the case for us. So we all lived together and my mother-in-law, who's lived with us for 25 years anyway. And so I helped my mother care for my dad to the end of his life, which was a great privilege, actually. Tough, but a great privilege. And then I had a watching brief for my ma just because they had married when she was 19. And, you know, that's she, she didn't even care, but she needed to be loved and cared for and not be on her own. And she lived for another three years after, but she checked out on her own terms. She was on stage with the entertainment group that she was in with my mother-in-law on the Thursday, felt a bit ropey on the Friday, went to hospital on Saturday, gone on Sunday. And when I was ringing people up to say, Barbara's died, they were saying... She can't have done. I've just had a card from her. I had lunch with her last week. She had seen decline and didn't want to do it. And she just like, nope, out. So I'd thought I was very good at grief, but that was devastating. It took me six months before I wrote again. Just couldn't make the space that you needed. And then my mother-in-law, Granny Rosie, as she's known by everybody, who is a legend in, in Chichester, who's approaching her 93rd birthday. She is now in a wheelchair and needs care. But that's only been the last five years. But it is, I feel very passionately about this, that carers have been very significantly let down by this current government. They, it, the promises to carers were in every one of those election manifestos and they have not been delivered. And the carers' allowance is lower than any other comparable allowance. And the amount of money that unpaid carers, and mostly women, uh, is almost equal to the entire NHS budget. So without us this country falls to pieces. And so the lack of respect for that, because most of us do it out of love, 
Some people do it out of duty or because there's no choice. Women are not going to down tools. We're going to do it anyway. But therefore, that has been exploited. And we are everywhere. Carers are everywhere. You know, if I had a quid for the number of times people have said to me, you don't look like a carer, you know, we could fund the NHS, frankly. You know, So it's all the things that people talk about. But usually when they talk about work-life balance, they're talking about caring at a di- the other end of the scale for younger people. But I think for me, it's about building a society that we should all be proud of, not in the basis only of self-interest, of the idea of what you need, therefore that's what matters. The idea that a society that is healthy and functioning and successful can be marked by how it cares for the people who need it most. And in the area of caring, we we are falling down in that. So I do campaign on that area. Um, But obviously, because I'm a carer and a granny and a full-time worker... (laughs) There's a limited amount of time, but you know it's it's great to be able to do things like this and talk about caring because it doesn't get talked about because people think it's gloomy, and people don't want to think about caring until it's happening to them, and then often there's no time and there's a lot of child carers in this country and that is also a, a scandal and we need to be starting to address that. Yeah, because. Um- just before we were going on this podcast, we were talking about your Desert Island Discs and you spoke about caring then. And were you surprised that that was the thing that people really came in and contacted you about? The producers of Desert Island Discs told me afterwards they'd had one of the biggest reactions to any show, not by a ce- celebrity, <laughs> you know, just a normal person uh, who'd done some stuff coming on. I think if you're on Desert Island Discs, yeah, you might be a celebrity. Yeah, well, I I, you know what I mean. There's, there's celebrities and there's the rest of us. But they said they had so many letters from people and one of them that they forwarded to me was from a woman in her late 80s and she, it was love you know handwritten and she said i've never written to somebody i don't know before and the last line i mean it actually it's still you know it just said i felt seen and um that so they were surprised as well but that's the point carers are everywhere you know there, there's millions of us and we're not visible now I'm going to end on the final question we ask everyone, which is, um, I mean, it, it can be sad, it can be happy. It depends how you take it. Um, it's from simply, what is the worst advice you've ever been given? And I, I imagine maybe that over the years we've been asked what the best advice is. Um, we once did that and we got a bit of a groan back, I think, from Lionel Shriver, <laughs> so we flipped it around. Oh, yeah. Well, I would say, write what you know. Everything about fiction is about imagination. It's about putting yourself as a writer, not as your own, you know, living, breathing, flesh and blood self, into the shoes of other people who are not you. Now, if I had followed that advice, I would have only written my pregnancy book. If other writers followed that advice, there'd be no crime fiction, because it'd all be knocked up in prison, wouldn't they? Because they'd yeah. be murderers, you know. Prison you know, diaries. Prison diaries. It would just be endless Jeffrey Archer from wall to wall. You know, so <laughs> I just feel that we have to reclaim the idea that fiction is you make it up and imagination should be king. Thank you, Kate, for joining today. Thank you. Thank you.